0: So we now go to our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, as we're coming before you, again, we are asking that you would speak to our hearts. Not interested in opinion, completely interested in divine truth, from the one who stands outside of time and sees the past, the present, and the future all in the present tense. There's wisdom here when we turn to you. And Father, whether it be the Christ in the Gospels on earth or the Christ in Revelation in heaven, he's the Christ. He's the one who came to die for our sins on the third day, was raised from the dead. So we want to focus our attention now upon him. So in these minutes together... Again, our prayer is that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. Father, we've come here again to see Jesus and Him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the phone call came, and the question that was asked was a question from an incredibly wonderful couple, Gary and Brenda. And Brenda posed this question that gets you thinking, doesn't it? Does your congregation lift up Jesus? Now, it would be the natural tendency to reflexively respond immediately, wouldn't it? But you need to take a step back and ask yourself, and why would that question be posed? And what's the purpose of that question? What's the context of that question? It became increasingly clear that when she posed that question, what she was asking is, is Jesus simply high on your list? Or is Jesus the highest? Is he the supreme one in your life? Now, for a great number of people who might just simply look at Jesus Christ as an incredibly gifted teacher or a very powerful example, he would definitely be high on their list. But Jesus, in the book of Revelation, would challenge you and challenge me with the fact that he is to be highest in our lives. He is to reign supreme. He is not merely to be prominent. He is to be preeminent. So with that in mind, what I want to do with you is to explore this Jesus found in the book of Revelation, a book that ties past, present, and future all together, written by the same man who would, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, write the fourth book of the New Testament, the Gospel of John, as well as write 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, and now, fifth and final in his writings, the book of Revelation, where he takes you from the earthly in the Gospel of John to the heavenly in the book of Revelation. And as he does so, he's going to provide you, he's going to provide me with what I will call two significant communion observations that I think will directly relate to the way in which we prepare our minds and our hearts for receiving the bread and the cup. Now, this first communion observation comes out of verses 1 through 7. We're going to put it like this. The number one, in preparation for communion, I want you to note with me the revelation of Jesus Christ. Which, in essence, is what the book of Revelation is, in fact, all about. In verse 1, we are informed of this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals on the throne. Now, John has been exiled by the one who is on the throne of Rome. He writes this somewhere between 85 and 95 AD. He is uh, positioned on what's known as the Isle of Patmos, one of the Greek isles of today. And God has broken into his exile experience. And John is saying, I saw, doesn't say he, I read about it. I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Who is seated on the throne? God the Father. Seated on the throne with a scroll. And the scroll is written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. Now, what we've got to bear in mind here is that this book was written on both sides, scroll. It's evidence of the fact, then, that means it contains a lot of information. Now, in those days, people wrote on papyrus sheets, which were stitched together. And the book of Revelation, for example, would have contained about 15 of the papyrus sheets. That much information. Written on both sides. And it contains the details by which our Lord, in the light of the covenant premises, assumes the authority that God has given him. Now, what is this scroll? It's a will. It's the disposition of earth's affairs. And the person in the time period of the Roman Empire who had any sense of legal training would know what is about to take place. It's called the document of the seven seals. Because at the time in which a will was being written, particularly a will of a large estate, the testator would appear in the presence of seven witnesses. The seven witnesses would gather together, step forward, and in the process, this document would be finalized. Each of the witnesses then would, one after another, seal this until this document was sealed sevenfold by the seven witnesses. It's the transference of property. The document would become the seven-sealed document. It's a disposition of the kingdom of God. And now the question is going to be asked, and who is worthy, who's designated in this throne room of the universe to be able to open up this will? And to whom is this will designated? In verse 2, you and I are told, I saw a mighty angel. Makes you wonder if there are any weakened angels, doesn't it? I saw a mighty angel. is proclaiming with a loud voice, and here's the question of the hour, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? This is a question of ability. It is a question of authority. Who has the right within the throne room of this universe, the control center of the cosmos, to be able to implement the will. It's the form of a question. An angel is posing this question. Now, this is an interesting question that the angels are continuously grappling with when they ponder the significance of who this Jesus is all about when it comes to that earthly ministry and what is still to come in that final day. Oh, they know who he is. But they're looking for the timing and the circumstances of that finale. In verse 3, what we are given is a sense of the scope by which the entire cosmos is, is evaluated. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. No one had the ability. Furthermore, no one had the authority. What is he stating at this point? What we are seeing here is what Paul himself had articulated in Romans there is none righteous. And the moment you want to raise your hand and say, what about me? He then adds, no, Highlander, no, not one. So now we lack both the ability as well as the authority because we are unrighteous due to the sin that we have inherited from Adam. Adam. And so no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And in verse 4, and you don't see a lot of this these days, but it was in the time of the Reformation. I began to weep loudly. You see, he has been confronted now with the sinfulness of sin. You and I traffic among a lot of people that assume the goodness of humanity. Sure, I'll take the scroll. I want to see what, what it's all about in the end. But when you are confronted with the holiness of God, you are therefore confronted likewise regarding yourself with the sinfulness of sin, and you take a step back, not a step forward. And there's this sense of sorrow when you look at the landscape globally and you realize, no, not one. Now we're in desperate shape. We've got a difficult situation on our hands because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Universal inability. What we desperately need is sovereign ability to break in. In verse 5, what I want to do with you, and on into verse 6 now, is to draw out three significant titles of the one being revealed here in the first seven verses. And the first title comes in verse 5, where one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. He's about to bring biblical assurance to this man exiled, you see. Out on that aisle. Behold. Now didn't John the Baptist once say to this one he was discipling, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He used the word behold. Again now, and this must be something that arrests the attention of John in particular. Words matter. Know which words are meaningful to the people you minister to. Behold. The first of the three titles emerges the lion of the tribe of Judah. There, then, is the first title of Jesus Christ. Now, globally, people still have a sense of this. They think of the king of the jungle. And naturally, everybody then pins it upon the idea of a lion. Little do they realize, so many of them, that there's a biblical basis for understanding that this jungle cosmos that we are in. Because in Genesis chapter 49, 8 through 10, this is appearing now on the screen, which gives you a basis for understanding this title. It's found in the first book of the Bible to help you to understand the last book of the Bible. God has a way of doing this, connecting your dots. And in the first book of the Bible is this significant promise that was delivered Delivered by Jacob under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to his 12 sons, Judah, in verse 8, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Get this now. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. And then this incredibly poignant statement in verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now the scepter was the symbol of royal authority. It was positioned in the hand of the king who sits on a throne between his knees. It would have been positioned between the knees in the hand of Herod when wise men from the east would make their way to the setting of Judah and pose the question Where is he who is born what? King of the Jews. Until tribute comes to him, we are told, in verse 10. Literally until Shiloh comes in the Hebrew. And the word there is the idea of anticipating Shiloh to come. It's a messianic promise. It refers to Jesus. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So now when you're watching Lion King, You nudge the person next to them. Even in secular society, there is embedded in the mindset of the secularists all kinds of principles that are tied to this idea of sovereign royalty. Use it as an evangelistic tool. Or if you are mentoring family members or friends or you're a teacher, well, you do what we've done in our family through the years. You pull out what else the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Aslan's a lion, you know. And uh, the children are saying to themselves, well, who is Aslan? Aslan, said Mr. Beaver, why don't you know now? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole woods, but not often here you understand. Now, there will be a famous expression describing him. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death, and when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Oh, said Susan, is he quite safe? I mean, I, I feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver responds, that you will, dearie, and no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Lewis was on to something because when it says in the gospel account that the people in Jerusalem were all shook up, it meant literally knees knocking. When the wise men came looking for the one known as King of the Jews, you see. Then he isn't safe, uh, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. What a rich story. We know it well. But not satisfied with one title, on that isle God gives John now a second title. And there in this verse in Revelation of chapter five, it goes on here at this point to say this He's not only the line of the tribe of Judah, number one, he's the root of David, number two. Now, Root of David means that we're talking about family tree. And he's moved from animals to trees, lions to trees now. And your mind continues to work this out, work this out, work this out. And Genesis 49, as it relates to that lion imagery, is not enough. Because likewise, if you were to make your way to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10... And you couple together verse 1, verse 10 of that 11th chapter, which appears on the screen. It reads this way in verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, can you spot it on the screen? Who shall stand as a signal for the people, of him shall the nations inquire, and its resting place shall be glorious. So now, when you're making way, your way through the genealogy of Matthew, you're making your way through the family tree, and you are understanding the root system here, and you are connecting Jesus backward to David, back furthermore to Jesse, and you're understanding the promises that are being made with regard to this one who was to come, and then you pause. You pause because you think about the fact that this one who is of the line of Jesse, therefore of the line of David, he made his way into Jerusalem where people were acknowledging him to be the son of David on the streets of Jerusalem. And he made his way forward, declaring him by the crowd to be king, only later to be crucified. And here we read in verse 5, has conquered So he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. Now you're standing at the cross and there you see this placard over Jesus. that reads King of the Jews. And you're trying to connect the dots. He's being crucified. And you're pondering the significance of how in the Old Testament that this kingdom is to be a forever thing. How do I make this work? Watch how God makes this work with the third title emerging in verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. Let me keep building on this. I saw a lamb standing. Try it again. A lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now in my book, slain lambs don't stand. The imagery here is death, resurrection. And when Jesus was entrusting his mother to John, On that cross. And John was beholding Jesus. On that cross. And John was studying that placard. Above Jesus. King of the Jews. And now here is John. And what he is doing at this point. Is that he pulls this trio of titles together. Lion of the tribe of Judah. On the promise of Genesis 49. The root here. Of David. Jesse's line you see it here and you tie it even further now to this lamb it's a lamb standing as though it has been slain you are left no other conclusion that this slain one was raised raised from the dead this is your Jesus these are the titles that are revealing Jesus to us He's not done here. He knows, you knows the legal system. That there are seven, not six, there are seven individuals who are eyewitnesses testifying to this will. Notice the reaction to the seven. Seven horns depicting the idea of the power of Christ. Seven eyes depicting the knowledge, the omniscience of Christ, which are the seven spirits depicting God the Father, God the Son, but now God the Holy Spirit, the three in one, all enveloped in this incredible scene at the throne of the cosmos that God sent out into all the earth. But there's something more about this lamb. It stands out to you. It stands out to me. Do you remember that in the gospel account, when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, as noted in your insert, the Greek word that was used in John one twenty nine was Amnas in the Greek typically used to describe a sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb, so to speak. But that is not the Greek word that is used in the book of Revelation. Twenty-seven times in the book of Revelation, the word that is used in the Greek is not "amnas," but as I've written here in your insert, anion. And you say, well, guess so what? Here's the thing. In the time period in which John lived, the Jewish literature of that day depicted this one who would come to conquer on behalf of the Jews. And is depicted in Jewish literature as the conquering lamb. What he has done is pulled together the gospel of John with the revelation of John and moved you from Amnos to Arnion, from death to resurrection. And we're awed. So out of that in verse 7, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. In other words, the incapable ones have just been blessed by the incomparable one. You like music? Beginning in verse 8 down through verse 14, some of the greatest music that was, is ever expressed in the cosmos breaks out. If verses 1 through 7 deal with the revelation of Jesus Christ, then verses 8 through 14 deal with the response to Jesus Christ. How do you respond to what has been revealed? How do you respond to who has been revealed? Well, there are three significant responses. The first is in 8 through 10, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before, no longer does it say a lamb, the lamb. A lamb in verse 6 Now, the lamb, they figured it out. In verse 8. Each holding a harp, golden bowls, full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Do a study sometime in your Bible on all the new song passages. And they sing a new song, not an old one. And what they are about to do is to answer the question posed in verse 2. The question, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? They respond musically, Worthy are you, sounds like he's living, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, sounds like he was dead. In other words, we've got death, resurrection now in the musical composition. How did this come about? Answer, by your blood you ransom people for God. And when you're holding that cup in your hand, be thinking about that verse. From every tribe and language and people and nation, that's a missions statement. A mission statement. Again, you're connecting Genesis to Revelation. Because in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, God had said to Abram, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. Make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you. And with him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The disciples were going to to go into Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts. And now what we've got here is the global response to all this. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Sometime read Exodus chapter 19 and what's known as the Eagle speech delivered by Moses. And they shall reign on the earth. There then is your first response. But then the second kicks in. In 11 and 12, and I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. This is some worship experience saying with a loud voice, they answered again. Who's worthy? Worthy is not a lamb. Worthy is the lamb. To echo what the previous people who sang stated. Who was slain, but note the is and the was. We've got death, resurrection here. Was deals with death, is deals with resurrection. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And to top it off, look at 13 and 14. The third response. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. In response to that issue of verse 3, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. You draw a line from 3 to 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to not a lamb, the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And look at what takes place next. Draw a line from 6 to 14. For while verse 6 tells us in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Here now in verse 14, and the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down. Look at the physical reactions of worship here. And worshiped. And now you tie that together. And you ponder the significance of the question, does your congregation lift up Jesus? And we say yes, because he's not merely prominent. He's preeminent. He's been raised from the dead. And so, Father, as we prepare our minds and prepare our hearts for receiving the elements, We're thinking seriously about that body broken. Thinking seriously about the blood shed. We think seriously about Jesus, our substitute who died in our place, so that we might have eternal life through you. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.